Net-A-Porter presents the Incredible Women podcast, Series 7, Vision and Voice. Welcome to the new series of the Incredible Women podcast. I'm Kay Barron, Fashion Director at Net-A-Porter, and I'm thrilled to be joined for this final episode of our Vision and Voice series by film director and screenwriter Emma Zelligman. The award-winning director became instantly renowned following the release of her debut feature film, Shiver Baby, in 2020. Based on a short that she made during her time at NYU, the comedy launched Emma as the indie name to know and the critics' favourite. There's no way to learn how to make movies other than to make movies. So (laughs) it really is just like get on set and figure it out. I mean, obviously prep and do all the work, but just do it. She has followed it this year with a movie inspired by seminal ones she watched growing up. Every generation has a high school comedy movie that talks to them. From Mean Girls and Bring It On, through Booksmart, The Breakfast Club and Heathers. And Emma has directed and co-written the high school comedy of our time, Bottoms. Which, thanks to its boundary-pushing nature, will become as iconic as those that preceded it. Think Fight Club for some randy queer teenage girls. Yes, it is as brilliant and bonkers as it sounds and very, very funny. So I can't wait to meet Emma and find out how her mind works. Hi, Emma. I am delighted to be speaking with you today. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? My day's got much better for speaking to you. Um, I have watched Bottoms this week and I am so excited to get to every single piece of information about it from you. But before we get to that, this is our Vision and Voice podcast. So I want to talk to you first about Vision. And I read that you were directing plays at school and you made your first movie, Shiver Baby, when you were just 24. Have you always had a vision about what it was you wanted to do? I think I had a vision in that I I knew I wanted to be telling stories and I knew I wanted to be telling women's stories and Jewish stories and then eventually queer stories. But I, it took me a while to figure out that I could um, really helm them from the beginning and that I could direct. I think I wanted to be involved in movies for so long. I wanted to be a film critic. Um, But it it wasn't until film school that I really started to be encouraged by, you know, my professors and my peers to tell my own stories. And did you grow up obsessed with movies? Can you remember the first one that you thought, oh, my God, this is the world I need to be in? My parents are big movie buffs, so I feel like I've just been watching movies since the time I was a baby, and they've they've never had restrictions on what I, I've been allowed to watch. Um, I remember seeing Catch Me If You Can in theaters when I was like six with my parents um, and falling in love with the costumes and the music and all the wonderful performances. And uh, I, I mean, I think... It's so cheesy, but like Steven Spielberg movies were my first love. And then not cheesy, classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They stand the test of time, honestly. That that's one of my sort of first memories of seeing like, you know, an awards contender in theaters around Christmas time, you know, with my family and getting excited about who is going to be nominated and stuff. Like that was just always a conversation every year. Um, so yeah, that's a distinct one. And do you still get excited by that? I do. It's a very different time now, you know, and I think that being on the other side of it, you know, sometimes it can feel a little industry-y, you know what I mean? And and sometimes, you know, you just want to be able to talk to friends about what you've seen and, and what you're excited about. Um, and I I value, you know, 
the 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 season, you know what I mean, of movie watching where people get excited, but things have changed so much, you know, with streaming and, um, you know, with how much people at home who aren't in the industry or whatever watch, you know, award shows that I think that it's, it's more, I get more excited just talking about movies that are out and who's seen what and around festivals as well. You know what I mean? I grew up in Toronto going to TIFF every year as a kid. And so that's a fun way also of, of sort of engaging with other people about, you know, what, what people are excited about. Well, because you said that you wanted to be a film critic at one point and you were contributing film reviews to the Huffington Post when you were a teenager. How did that happen? And what was the first one you submitted? Um, that happened because I had my own film blog that didn't do well. Like, it's not like anyone read anything other than like my family members. Um, Could I still find it? No. (laughs) Thank God. Um, No. Uh, But I loved writing movie reviews. And I think there might have been a submission process. Like I had to apply. They had a specific section called HuffPost Teen. They had a select sort of a few, uh, you know, teen journalists. And then it just sort of went into the film section. And I think the first one that I submitted you know, I would see in my my reviews for them would be a mix of YA movies um, and like stuff I was seeing at TIFF. So I I don't know if this was my first one, but I remember Spring Breakers being a big one that I was excited about. And then I got like quoted from that and like the trailer and I was like 16 and I was like freaking out. Um, uh, and then it was like it was like Spring Breakers and then the Hunger Games. Um, Can you remember what the quote was for Spring Breakers? I think I just was cinematic brilliance or something. I think there was another one that was like Scarface meets Britney Spears. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> uh, I think you need to bring back this film critic blog. I mean, I mean I, I'd read this. <laughs> oh my God. It's really just me. I was obsessed with Ebert and Roper as a kid and uh, and then um, uh, Roger Ebert passed away and... and um, uh, Richard Roper started having like Michael Phillips and and other other reviewers on, um, but I was obsessed with watching that, and I would just listen to them honestly and and copy them a little bit. I was so um, kind of either super effusive or super sort of cheesy with the metaphors I would um, write with. It wasn't it wasn't great film criticism, but it, it was passionate. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to ask that: Had you worked on a movie set before you made the short of Shiva Baby? No, um, I'd done um, just a few projects in school. You know, I'm grateful I had that experience and that education because, you know, through working on different little assignments, I get the chance. You get the chance to work with different students and and be on little tiny mini movie sets. Um, so I made one other short film before Shiva Baby, the short. Um, and then that was my final project in school. How did you know what you were doing then? Um, you just watch. I mean, I th- class, class really prepares you for mm. it. I think that, um, I mean, my first short didn't have any dialogue and I remember feeling very, um, you know, intentional about that. Um, but you're on set so much when you're in film school, at least at NYU. And then, you know, like as a PA running around and then, you know, as doing whatever you can to help support your friends. Um, and then so many kids, you know, are so talented and then suddenly they're doing music videos for the, the music students and then they're doing actual music videos where they're getting paid and then they're doing commercials. Like the set culture is, is so um, fluid here in New York um, with smaller short form projects or, or long form. Um, so 
you know, you just watch and learn. But I mean, you're totally freaked out. Like no one knows what they're doing. And I, I've been sort of um, humbled each and every time. And it's been nice to learn from other directors, even huge directors that like you feel scared and like you have no idea what you're doing. And this is a completely made up job. You know what I mean? Um, no matter how big the project is. But I think that does apply across lots of industries. And it's always nice sure. when you realize that people, everyone's kind of chancing it slightly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, 100%. And, and living on your nerves. <laughs> everything's really stressful all the time because you're just bit like, is this the right way to do it? Um, yeah. So when Shiver Baby um, was released, and it was sort of released during the pandemic, wasn't it? And obviously became a critic's favorite. And the reviews were amazing. And you became kind of like this sort of indie pinup girl. But how did how did that feel considering, you know, you were just out of uni and, and living and living at your parents at the time, too, I think? Yeah, I was back at my parents um, for the pandemic um, the first year. It, it happened really slowly and gradually and, and virtually. And and because I was living with my parents, it felt very strange. That was quite a humbling experience. And I sort of felt like I was back living in my movie uh, to a certain degree. I mean, it was amazing. Like, I felt so grateful. And, you know, like, I, I, I felt like I achieved my dreams and I did the thing that a lot of people, you know, want to do, make a first feature out of a, a short film, you know, and um, do it, especially from a school project. Like, I felt like I was, I was living a dream, but also it's very surreal. I think also, you know, I'm Canadian and and I'm a woman and I, I know, you know, I'm, spe- I'm speaking <laughs> to someone who's English and uh, Scottish. It, it, Scottish. I'm sorry. <laughs> My bad. Okay. I'm sorry. 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 No, but 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 you know, it's to take it in feels very strange. Like, I, and I don't think I know how to do yet. You know, I sort of I feel like every all the success is through a wall um, because to take it in and be like and to bask in the glory feels like a really weird and unnatural thing to do. To be like, yes, it's been great. You know what I mean? <laughs> the success is amazing. I think also though maybe because it almost was through a wall you know, that first huge round of success because everyone was remote. Yeah. Um, which maybe that little bit of distance made it slightly easier to absorb it, even though it probably felt more surreal that way. Yeah, I I think that if I had been going to festivals in person and meeting audience members and, and shaking their hands and, and hearing from them, maybe I would have been more overwhelmed. Um, I certainly have been this time around with bottoms. And, you know, when everything's coming from your phone, it feels not real. You know what I mean? Mm. When you're getting like messages on your phone and you're reading reviews on your phone, you're like, this might as well be a dream. You know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't feel tangible. So, yeah, that that definitely created some distance. Well, talking of success, I want to talk about bottoms now. I want to know where the idea for the film came from. Well, I really just wanted to collaborate with Rachel Sennett. Uh, I'd met her when we did the short film for Shiva Baby, and she was a comedian at the time and making sketches in school. And I had one comedy idea. You know, I had many other ideas that were darker or, you know, in different genres, but I sort of pitched her my one comedy idea, which was just honestly, like all it was, was like, you know, teen sex comedy, but with queer girls at the center of it. And they're fighting somehow or, you know, there's like a superhero arc or, you know, there's there's some element that makes it kind of like an action movie a little bit. And she just was so game and was like, OK, cool, like, let's do it. And it we just like figured out the idea over a whiteboard, you know, like in an NYU basement. Um, 
and brainstormed a million ideas. I mean, the movie is quite absurd. So it wasn't hard to be like, well, what if there's, you know, a whole subplot where the football players are doing this? You know, it was a fun genre to be able to play in. And the idea just sort of formed from there. Is that the whiteboard that's on your Instagram? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's amazing to see that that's, that's the work in progress. Um, and yeah. that's where it all started from. Because um, I read that you said that the intention for Bottoms was specifically to make something raunchy and bloody for queer teen audiences. I'm getting sick of tragic stuff, especially when queerness is the plot. And I think you've definitely succeeded in that. But it's also, it is an empowering movie. And was that intentional from the start? Because I think that point that you say, there's there's a lot of tragic stuff. And I think there is, there's so many kind of heartbreaking dramas out there. And a lot of the stories are heartbreaking. But this is, this feels like a very kind of like positive release. Yeah. I mean, I think that we we didn't want it to be tragic, but we also didn't want it to be too self-serious and, and positive in a political way. I think that you know, we've made strides with queer representation, but sometimes it feels a little overly sanitized and a little overly positive to a point where it feels unrealistic, where there's parents that are 100% accepting of their children and, you know, they exist in a world that's not homophobic or, you know, where it's very easy to come out or, you know, it's very, you know, the most you have to figure out is sort of like, I don't know, like how to hold your crush's hand or whatever. And I think that, It did feel it did feel empowering at the end, but that kind of snuck up on us. I don't think we wanted it to feel that empowering. I think we just wanted it to be stupid. But somehow through making it stupid, it's become empowering. Um, You know, Io says something like, you know, being stupid is a political act um, and because everything's political. Um, (laughs) So uh, I think that that's come later in the process, sort of looking at the final result and, and seeing the way it's resonating with people. Because what's the takeaway that you want teenagers, well, anyone watching it to have? I just want them to have fun. I Mm. think that like I'm tired of, you know, only feeling seen on screen and only being represented when I'm being forced to like think deeply about my identity. And I just think that like queer audiences deserve a break and deserve to see themselves while not having to use their brain too much. (laughs) You know, Um, just just like being able to see themselves while also laughing. It is very funny. And the cast, everyone in the cast is amazing. But the two leads are like, you can't take your eyes off them. Yes, I got, you know, very lucky um, with my my two, you know, main collaborators. Rachel obviously wrote the script with me, Rachel Sennett. And Io Debris has been our, our friend for a while from university. And they Because they used together. to do stand up together. They did stand they up do? together. Yeah. Yes. And they, they did sketches together um, that Rachel wrote. And then they did this like Comedy Central series um, in 2019. Um, but yeah, I often would go to their comedy shows or that would host together or they would be in the same lineup. Um, they were working their way, you know, through like the alt comedy scene in New York back in like 20, 2017 to 2019. I've been on the periphery of the, that kind of comedy community for a minute. Um, and now they've both sort of flourished and taken off and, and, and you know, are acting mostly, which is funny because I feel like for a while I always in writer's rooms and, uh, you know, uh, trying to pursue comedy that way. Um, So it's been wonderful to watch their rise. And I think also there's like a high school comedy movie, I think, for every generation. And I feel like this is the one that talks to the generation now. Um, But the costume design, I mean, maybe it's because I kind of come from a fashion 
background. So I was obsessed with all the kind of the, the choices of costume. And did you want it to have a 90s feel? Um, because I do think that Kaya Gerber single-handedly brings back Juicy Couture in one single scene. <laughs> as soon as I saw it, I was like, why am I only thinking about Juicy Couture tracksuits now? And I want one. Um, so was that was that intentional to have that 90s feel? Because also the soundtrack has got some great kind of 90s hits in it. Totally. Um, I mean, I love your perspective on it. I'm so glad to hear that you like the costumes. Yeah, some of it I wanted it to feel 90s. Um, I worked with an incredible costume designer, Eunice Jara Lee, who also comes from fashion. And I handed her, poor thing, like a gajillion references from multiple teen movie eras. And I wanted it to feel timeless. And I felt like each character represented a different, not, you know, intentionally, but, you know, I was inspired by different movies of different time periods, uh, you know, for all the kids in it. Like Isabel, I wanted to feel like, you know, a little bit more like Sandy in Greece. And I wanted to have more like She's fuzzy. Quite clueless as well. Yeah. Like I wanted textures that were um, really that popped on the screen and that, yeah, I wanted her in pastels, um, uh, you know, sort of like in thinking about jawbreakers or even, but I'm a cheerleader. And then with Kaya, I wanted her to be like fully out of like a Y2K movie. And I wanted her to feel like she was in 10 things I hate about you or she's all that. And, uh, you know, for the football players, they were obviously in their uniforms, the whole movie. And so I wanted that to feel like out of, you know, like, like, I don't know, something as, as, I don't know, like Friday Night Lights or, you know, or uh, uh, a little older than that. And, um, you, you know, same, and like Sylvie played by Summer Joy Campbell, the one with the braces, like who's, who's awesome. I wanted her to look like, um, you know, Jay from Jay and Silent Bob, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, yes, definitely. I took references from a lot of time periods, but per, yeah, not the, there were a lot of 90s references for sure. And also the main characters and their rugby shirts and the way yes. that they kind of sort of change and develop through um but um yeah no i thought the costume design was just brilliant but what was your high school experience um you know pretty typical like i don't know i i was i went to like a wonderful huge kind of messy (laughs) uh, public high school in toronto um and it was it was big and i was a, a drama nerd um and uh there were like all kinds of kids there people like came from across the city. Um, uh, and I don't know, I was really angsty, like every other teen girl, you know what I mean? And, and emotional. Um, but I love my friends. I love movies. I loved, you know, theater. Um, and you know, I had that outlet and I, I feel lucky that I grew up in such an awesome city and, you know, got to experience art and, and movies, you know, with a wonderful community around me. It's great that they did have a great drama department at, at the school too. I think probably that's in the, the, the bigger high schools that you have in Canada and the States, they do put quite a lot of emphasis on creativity, more so probably than we do in the UK. Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, because in the UK, don't you have to sort of figure out your specialty or your interests a little bit earlier on in high school? or When you're too young to do it, yeah. Yeah. When, when no one's got a clue what's going on. That's so so tricky. I mean, we, we, the, I would say the drama department at my school, like it wasn't an art school. It was like the kids that made it important. Like, yes, we had amazing teachers, but we sort of like went to hell and back to like, you know, get in early to get the one tech room, you know, like we didn't have a lot to work with, but um, the kids cared a lot. um, And and so did our teachers. So it was sort of like a self-made drama department. (laughs) Um, Passion, uh, passion in numbers. Yes. Yeah. 
And I mean, that passion still kind of carries through your work because I read that your first film was shot on a budget of $200,000. And then obviously Bottoms was in the millions. Yes. How does that budget jump and that pressure affect your process, if at all? You know, in some ways, it just feels like a it stretches it. Like I'm using the same tools, but it takes longer, you know, to prep for multiple locations and um, a more ambitious tone, a more ambitious, you know, scope, something that involves multiple genres um, and and references. Uh, I think prep is everything and, and multiple conversations with each department is it's like sort of it's the same methods but I was I was definitely um challenged uh you know to keep myself creatively nimble and excited on set because it was just so much work and I uh I felt myself getting tired you know and 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 I really you know look back and I, I was the same age as the actors. So I think it affected my process and that I would be like, uh, I'm tired. You know what I mean? Like, and like complain with them. And I have just like learned that, you know, you have to keep a front and, and, and you're there to protect them and to make them feel, um, you know, safe and excited and encouraged. Um, so I think it affected my process and that sort of the, the, the wall came down a little bit where I was just like, so kind of like, I felt a little too comfortable being like, oh my God, movies, you know what I mean? Um, but, uh, you know, I feel grateful that I got to do it. Um, and it had to happen sooner or later, you know what I mean? <laughs> Jumping in terms of scope. Well, it, well, it has happened sooner which is <laughs> yeah. great. Um, because how long were you filming for and how big was the crew? We shot for um, six weeks, six and a half weeks. Um, and it ranged. I mean, there were some days where, you know, we were shooting, you know, two people in a bedroom and uh, our crew was the size of like 100 people or whatever. And then sometimes we were shooting outside on, you know, that football field and there were 200 extras plus you know, 150 crew members plus, you know, our main ensemble cast of 50 people. So it ranged from slightly intimate to pretty, pretty big. Because I have to say actually as well that the set design, just when you were talking about bedrooms and then the different kind of levels of teenage bedroom in it as well, um, which I remember from kind of my school experience when you go around someone's house and you're like, wow, you've got a TV in here. Yeah, yeah, totally. And your own phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Again, no spoiler alerts, but Kaya Gerber's, her character's bedroom. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was a fun I was one. All in, I was all in the details of this. <laughs> so how how do you feel that you get the best out of your actors? Because obviously you've worked with Rachel twice now and she co-wrote this one. Um, but then working with new actors and actors are older than you too. Are you comfortable? Are you more comfortable with that now? Yeah. I mean, I think actually I, it was challenging in a different way. I, I On Shiva Baby, I was very nervous working with actors who are so much more experienced than me, like Fred Malamud and Polly Draper and, and Diane Agron, um, who are much older than me because of, of that difference in experience. Um, but on Bottoms, I was actually, you know, surprised by how challenging I, it felt like it was to direct friends, you know, um, and to sort of talk to them like they're your actor and not like they're your buddy. Um, but, you know, what's so fascinating, what's so fun about working with actors is they're all so different. And so, like, you very quickly need to figure out what they individually need, the language that they like, and how they like to be directed. And uh, on Bottoms, it was a 
I think because it's a comedy, especially, and and it's like so broad um, in terms of the tone. It's not grounded in like a completely, you know, or at all a naturalistic world. Um, it ranged in terms of how every actor liked to be directed, and so it's so much trial and error, and and eventually you figure it out. Like Io is someone that doesn't like being directed too much for the first couple takes. She likes trying things out and then you know being guided. Um, Versus, you know, Havana likes to talk in depth, you know what I mean, about her intentions and her motivations going into each scene, um, you know, and Rachel, you know, is like so nimble and that she can take direction and 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 do it immediately or she can take no direction and just go in and be amazing. Io improvises a lot. Um uh, yeah, so it was like a mix of different things. And I think that you just, the key to the success of getting good performances is just like listening and understanding what they need from you um, in order to make them feel comfortable. I was going to say, on, just kind of on the back of that, what's the best advice you've had and who are the voices that you listen to the most? <sighs> That's hard. Going into both making Shiva and Bottoms, I like tried to talk to as many directors as I could. Um and would collect so many tidbits of advice. Um, and uh, honestly, the, th- the piece of advice that was most helpful when I look back on it was to not overthink it and to trust myself. And I think that I was trying to be a good student and getting as many answers to things as I can. And there were definitely like some good pieces of advice that I've, I've taken down and noted Um but when you're feeling all that adrenaline on set and, you know, you're, you're trying to make your day and everything feels like it's the end of the world, I wasn't thinking about the notebook of questions and answers I got from all these directors. I was just thinking about what's best for this moment, you know, for this shot that I'm trying to get, that what what do I need in order to achieve this, the best version of this scene with the limited time we have, we just lost this location, whatever. You know, I feel very grateful to have mentors like Jason Reitman and, and Adam McKay. And, and Elizabeth Banks was probably the biggest one because she was one of our producers. Um, and I, I will say like a version of sort of the same piece of advice is that it's cheesy, but she just says like, there's no way to learn how to make movies other than to make movies. So <laughs> it really is just like get on set and figure it out. I mean, obviously prep and do all the work, but just do it. It's always that sink or swim, isn't it? for everything it's like drop them in yeah and I think that having those people around you is amazing but you're right you just have to figure it out in your on your own because you can't kind of imitate anyone else's career either no you just have to like listen to what you're doing I mean it's like what we talked about earlier like we're making it up as we go along and we're making it up because you know we're we invented the story. Like I kept on being like, I can't believe all these people are here because Rachel and I wrote this stupid movie in a coffee shop. You know what I mean? And now we've assembled all these people. But yeah, I think that those people are wonderful to have in terms of like people to vent to or to say, look, I'm struggling with this. Like, how do you cope? Maybe when you're in it, but it's just nice to feel heard and validated by people who understand it. But, but I think ultimately like you have to listen to yourself when it comes to actually working, you know. And you have to have those other people who are not on set that you can go, my God, making movies is tiring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And apparently Rachel is somebody who has um, journals of her three-year plans. Are you somebody who has got a clear, as clear a vision as that of your future? Um, And what's next for you? 
Um, I think that I used to use that strategy, especially in wanting to achieve Shiva Baby and Bottom as well. I was still, you know, figuring out my life and trying to get my visa and stuff out of school. But I think ultimately as a director, like each project takes up anywhere between two to 10 years of your life. I don't know, even more for some directors. Um, so I've stopped with the goals just because I, I'm trying to trust that whatever the next baby is will, will be born in the way that it needs to. And I, you know, I just want to be able to continue to tell queer and Jewish stories and female stories and genres that we haven't seen them in, in this way where, you know, it's not, um, their identity isn't the plot. Well, I'm excited because I think, you know, as you were saying earlier, you said that you had other genres and ideas um, as well as obviously the the comedy that became Bottoms. Um, so are there still projects that you'd had from NYU that you're like, actually, that's something that I could develop later? Yeah, some, definitely. Yeah. Certain periods of history, you know what I mean, or whatnot that I that I want to investigate and take time in, you know what I mean, and research um, for sure. And then new ideas as well. Are you quite good at giving yourself a break? You're like, OK, this has come out. This is, you know, a success story. <laughs> Do you think, OK, let's just, you know, you don't feel I have to rush straight into something new? I feel that way now. I feel like I'm I'm getting better at that. I think after Shiva Baby, I was so excited by like a wave of interest coming my way. And, you know, thankfully we'd already written Bottoms. You know, obviously we were writing it and rewriting it and rewriting it up until the moment we shot it. But uh, I think I, you know, was like, attached and interested in like a gajillion different things or whatever. And, and then once I sort of said, everyone needs to stop, I'm going to focus on bottoms now. I forgot how much I love doing one thing at a time um, and how great it is to be focused. So um, yes, at this point in time, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to give myself a break. That doesn't mean it comes easily. <laughs> you know, I think that there's a certain part of me and anyone who, who likes what they do that is like used to feeling driven by anxiety and stress and, yeah. and deadlines. Um, but I, you know, I think it's like a dance of, of figuring out that balance. It's the same as me. I respond well to homework. Yes. But also to deadlines and structure. Yes. Like that's, I need, I need that in my life and then I can kind of compartmentalize things. And then you've just got that one thing you're focusing on. Everything else becomes easier. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And finally, whose voice or vision inspires you the most? I think I think Greta Gerwig right now. I know that maybe that's an obvious answer, but it's really really cool to be working as a female director. This like even as as recently as now, like to be releasing a movie um, as a female director after the release of Barbie and looking at the three movies she's done and the stories she's interested in telling. Um, I think I am the last person in the world to have seen Barbie. I still haven't seen it. <laughs> um, well, I, rec I recommend it, but also that's awesome. I often, I'm usually someone that has to wait until the hype is over because I get, I'm just like overwhelmed by the conversation. But I, I was finding a strange feeling come over me where I like couldn't, I didn't want to find out anything about it. And so I, I had to see it like opening night. But yeah, I mean, it's just wonderful to be able to like look to someone and be like, she did it and she did it on a huge budget. And uh, I don't know, I feel very grateful um, to, to be working in this industry when she is. So I think she inspires me the most right now. Um, but, you know, I think like growing up, like I loved and I still do like the Coen brothers, they, they have split up, but I loved how authentic their voice 
was or is through so many different genres um, and adaptations of books and remakes, you know, and then also completely original films and taking us to different time periods. Um, and they make it look so effortless. So, so they're sort of a classic duo that has always inspired me. You also voice. make it look effortless, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I love to hear that. <laughs> God knows what's going on behind the scenes with the film brothers. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's a trick. As long as it looks like it was completely effortless, then you yes. nailed it. Yes, totally. Amazing. Well, I cannot wait to see what you do next. Um, Thank literally. you. And I will be on the campaign to get Bottoms a UK release. Yes, please, please get it to the UK. I need, to, I need to talk to someone about it. Yeah, please. I, I need I needed to be there so everyone can watch it in an, with an audience, with a group of people. Um, um, fingers crossed. But um, yeah, no, I loved it and um, so delighted to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Vision and Voice was brought to you by Netta Porte and Chalk and Blade. Hosted by Net-A-Porter's content director Alice Casely Hayford and fashion director Kay Barron. The team at Net-A-Porter was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The producer at Chalk and Blade was Emily Wally. Original music by Alexis Adamora, and the series was mixed by Nasson De Silva.